This morning's reading is taken from Mark chapter 14, verses 27 to 42. Please turn with me in your Bibles and will also appear on the screen behind me. While we're turning there, I just want to remind you that this is the Word of God that we're about to read. So please treat it with respect and let's give it our full attention as we listen and read the passage in front of us. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will have disowned me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass for him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what he will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. Thank you, Matthew, for that very clear reading. Uh, just a reminder that for the last couple of Sundays we've been in our worship workshop on Sunday night. I think last Sunday we had people from eight different countries tuning in and uh, sharing their experiences of worship and sharing how they prepare for services in those different cultures. And it has been a really tremendous time together. So it's not too late to hop on the bus. I guarantee it's the only international worship workshop in Cape Town tonight. So uh, do make sure that you're with us and it will be a blessed time. Uh, Meantime, please take up your Bible, if you haven't done so already, at the passage that Matthew read for us. And uh, I'm going to lead us in prayer. Well, our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, 
You promised to be with your church, watching over us, protecting us and providing all that we need for life and godliness. We thank you that you know our past and understand it completely, that you know our needs and are able to meet them adequately, that you know our destiny and are able to prepare us for it perfectly. So will you come to us now and speak to us by your Spirit, through your Word, that each of us might be conscious that we're listening to the voice of the Lord Jesus, calling us now to follow him into the future. For it is in his name that we ask it. Amen. Well, if you've ever had a nightmare, uh, you know how real a nightmare can be. Uh, You're asleep, but you think you're awake. Uh, You believe that it's really happening. Uh, Your heart starts starts beating faster and faster. Uh, You desperately want to escape. Uh, You shout for help. Nothing happens. Uh, The danger gets bigger. Uh, It comes nearer. You're convinced you're about to die. And then you wake up. Uh, For a moment you're not quite sure where you are. Uh, You're not sure that the danger has altogether passed, but after a couple of minutes you do realise that it was in fact only a nightmare, and then the relief follows. Well, in our passage, Jesus has the ultimate nightmare. But of course he's not going to wake up and find that it was just a dream, because it isn't. It's real. It's appallingly real. The disciples are fast asleep. Jesus is wide awake. In fact, he's the most awake person there. He's actually living the nightmare. And in our passage, we're shown something of the horror and the emotional turmoil that Jesus suffered the night before he died. Now, of course, his death is way more serious than a mere physical death. It's a relational death, or what uh, one writer has described as a disruption with the Father. So friends, we're on very holy ground as we travel with Jesus and the disciples into Gethsemane. And we do, I think, need to approach these verses with reverence, as Matthew said, and with seriousness. The passage, I think, divides neatly into two parts. In verses 27 to 31, there is what I'm calling a painful but perfect prediction. It's not actually the first prediction that Jesus has made in the Gospel, but I think it's probably the most painful. And then it's followed in verses 32 to 42 by a distressing but divine decision. One of my favourite commentators on Mark, James Edwards, he says this, Nothing in the entire Bible compares to Jesus' agony and anguish in Gethsemane. So please remember, this isn't one 
ordinary person going through a particularly hard time or a deep valley. This is the Son of God, the infinite person, making a decision as to whether he will shoulder the sins of the world or whether he'll leave the world to shoulder its own sin. And because of the decision that Jesus makes in the Garden of Gethsemane, he actually changes the history of the world from being a hopeless world into becoming a deathless world. A world where a person may pass safely through death, come out the other side and stand in the presence of God. So this is a very, very remarkable section. Firstly then, a painful but perfect prediction. Now you'll remember in verse 18 that Jesus said at the Last Supper that one of the disciples would betray him and now he goes a step further and he says, all of you will fall away. Now just imagine uh, the shock if I was to stand here this morning and say to you, you are all going to fall away from Christ. You're all going to fail. You're all going to run. That would be a shock. That's the terrible thing Jesus says here. But then there's a wonderful thing in verse 28. I wonder if you noticed it. He says, now notice this, but I will rise and we, so not a new group of people, I'm not going to replace you, we, meaning those of you who've run away, will meet together in Galilee. You can't actually imagine a more physical resurrection than that, can you? Jesus says, I'll meet you again, we're going to be together in Galilee. But the disciples don't listen to the bad news and they don't listen to the good news either. We know that they don't listen to the bad news because Peter immediately says it's not going to happen. And we know that they don't listen to the good news either because they all go down to the tomb on Easter morning. And of course the tomb is empty. And you remember the angel at the empty tomb says, but he told you this would happen. Obviously he's not here. He's going to meet you in Galilee. So they're not listening to the good news and they're not listening to the bad news either. Now, is it not a good thing for us this morning to pause and to remember something really rather humbling, which is actually that you and I don't hear as much as we should. Uh, it's very comforting, really, when you consider the tremendous privileges and responsibilities that God entrusts to every Christian. But just think about it. Uh, here is the greatest person the world has ever seen saying the most significant things the world has ever heard, but it goes straight over the heads of the disciples. So, is it possible that those of you who are parents or grandparents could say things to your children and they just don't get it? Yes, it is. Is it possible you could be leading a Bible study 
and you say something to the group which is highly significant, but nobody listens. Yes, it is. Is it possible that the preacher could be preaching on Sunday and the message is just not being heard? Yes, it is. It actually came home to me uh, one Sunday evening a few years ago in a church not far from here, and uh, during the sermon there was a lady just a few seats further down in the same row who was actually painting her toenails during the sermon. She had the nail file out, the whole thing. One way or another, actually we're all like that. And it is good to acknowledge our ability to miss the message. And yet, and yet, the word of God remains 100% true whether you hear it or not. It's like me saying to you this morning, the building's on fire, and you don't listen. But friends, if the building's on fire, the building's on fire, isn't it? And here Jesus says, you're all going to fall away. Peter says, we won't. Jesus says, yes you will. And they do. And in the same way, friends, you see the Bible says to us, protect your soul, guard your soul, and we can be in the kind of mood that says, I've heard that before. I'm switching off. Or the Bible says, uh, love one another, it's your obligation, it's your privilege. And we might say, I've heard that before, I'm switching off. Or the Bible says, don't give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another daily. And we say, I've heard that before, I'm switching off. Or even more seriously, the Bible says, beware certain traps and temptations which are actually too strong for you. And we say, I've heard that before. I'm switching off. But you see, one way or another, the truth establishes itself. One way or another, we learn that what God says is always true. And sometimes we learn that the easy way. Sadly, a little more often, we learn it the hard way. Now, the reason that we know the disciples are going to fall away and abandon Jesus in the short term is because God says they're going to. And you'll find that in verse 27. Did you notice that? Where Jesus quotes Zechariah 13, 7, where God says he's going to strike his son, strike the shepherd, and the sheep will run. So God makes that prediction in the Old Testament, and Jesus says that's about to happen. God is going to bring down his justice on his son. As Isaiah the prophet says, he's going to crush the son, and the sheep are going to run. And Peter and the rest say, no, that's not going to happen. And it does. I think Peter's comments are really rather painful, aren't they? Uh, especially the fact that they would be recorded for the whole world 
to read and to hear. We have it on very good authority from a man called Papias, who was a leader in the early church in 135 AD, that Peter was the main source for Mark's writing. That's where Mark got his intel. He got it from Peter. And I think it's very remarkable to think that Peter one day would have been sitting with Mark in his study and actually saying, you know what happened? Jesus said, you're all going to fall away. And, and I said, no, it's not going to happen. That's how stupid I was. And then he goes on to say, but all the other disciples said the same thing. And then when we get to verse 66, which we will do in a week or two's time, we find Peter doing exactly, exactly what Jesus said. Somebody says to Peter, you belong to Jesus. No, I don't. But you do belong to Jesus. No, I don't. I'm sure you belong to Jesus. No, I do not. Three times, exactly as Jesus said. So in our passage, I want you to please notice the accuracy of Jesus' prediction in verse 30. It is so precise. It's going to be Peter, the one who's just said that if everyone else falls away, he's not going to. Then Jesus says it's going to happen tonight. So what should we say, before six o'clock in the morning? Something like that. And Peter is going to say that he doesn't know Christ three times. So not once, not half a dozen times, but three times precisely. And it's going to happen before the rooster crows twice. So again, not once, not four times, twice. And the night progresses. And when the rooster crows twice, Peter has indeed denied Jesus three times. If you think about it, the, the accuracy of the detail is astonishing. It is a painful but perfect prediction. So Jesus has predicted the very sad news of a failure. Uh, Peter said, I'm strong, I believe in myself, I'm very capable. And Jesus says, no you're not. Now friends, I think we should beware of the Christian who says they have a strong faith. You do sometimes hear that phrase, don't you? Friends, the truth is we have a strong saviour. Most of us actually have a frail faith. And then secondly, there's this marvellous news of hope. Jesus says, I'm going to rise, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. Now, don't you think it's rather odd that none of the disciples picks up on that and says to Jesus, hang on, I'm sorry, Did, could you just say that again? Did you say you're actually going to rise and we're going to be together again in Galilee when this is all over? But no one does. They're not listening. And friends, isn't it so very encouraging that Jesus deals graciously with people like this? 
one writer says, we also, you and I, need to remember that we are saints and sinners, not angels. Saints, because we put our trust in Christ. Sinners, because we continue to fall. We're not angels. And I love what uh, Bishop Ryle has to say in his commentary on Mark about this. He says this, quote, The Lord knew what these disciples were before conversion, yet he loved them. He knows what they'll be after conversion, and he loves them. Therefore, let us learn to pass charitable judgment on the conduct of other believers. Let us not say they have no grace because we see weakness and corruption. We ourselves are all weak and there will be no complete cures until the resurrection. Well, that's a lesson for us this morning, isn't it? It's very striking, it's also very comforting and it's a good reminder to us that Jesus makes this this painful but perfect prediction. But secondly, Jesus makes a distressing but divine decision in verses 32 to 42. Now I'm sure we've all picked up by now that Jesus has got no real helpers He's approaching the goal of his mission and none of the disciples can be trusted. Not one of them. And when they arrive at Gethsemane, the only thing that he actually asks of them is that they would remain awake. But they can't even do that. As a little aside, I I couldn't help but feel the personal challenge in verse 37 where Jesus says, Simon, are you asleep? (laughs) Uh, I think I should perhaps have verse 37 framed on my desk, because the honest truth is that occasionally I am asleep, and I'm not awake and on my knees praying as I ought to be. And maybe that's true for you too. And what you see, we see in these verses, is a very disappointing bunch of disciples. Jesus isn't counting on them, Uh, He's not even hoping that they're going to pray for him. Did you notice that? He's simply asking them to watch because things are serious. And he says they should pray for themselves. And to make the point even more clearly that he's not depending on them, Jesus selects Peter, James and John to go with him and they've hardly covered themselves in glory. Because back in chapter 10, you remember that James and John said, we want the best seats at your coronation. And Peter has just said, even if everybody else falls away, I'm going to be a hero. And it's these very disappointing disciples that Jesus takes to the very heart of his struggle in Gethsemane. Probably because because he wants them to learn that he really is going to die. You need to know that the language in verse 33 is very loaded. Um, Our Bibles say that Jesus was deeply distressed, but the word in the original means that he was thrown into terror. Uh, Can you imagine being picked up 
right where you are this morning and thrown into terror. Verse 33 also says that Jesus was troubled. But that's actually rather a weak translation. I had a look at the word in the original this week and I think it literally means against the demon. You language scholars can go and check up on the word later. But I think the picture in the, ba- in the background here is that Jesus is engaged in a, in a hectic, demonic battle. And in verse 34, when Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, a better reading, I think, would be, I'm surrounded by sorrow. It's all around me. There is no escape. There's no light anywhere on the horizon. And maybe those of you who know what it's like to be anxious or to be frightened or to be panicky, maybe you can identify with these these words of being distressed and troubled and overwhelmed with sorrow. And even if you can, that's still not getting us close to what Jesus was actually going through. I think Martin Luther was absolutely right when he said, no one feared death like Jesus. That's a pretty striking comment, isn't it? No one feared death like Jesus. But you see, it's absolutely true, isn't it? Because no one has faced a death like Jesus. And of course, we're not just talking about the crucifixion, the physical death. I mean, many men and women were crucified and went to their deaths bravely. And we know that many people in church history went to their deaths bravely. I think, for example, of Archbishop Latimer being burned at the stake on Broad Street in Oxford in the 16th century and as they were setting fire to the, uh, putting a match to the, to the flames there. He turned to Ridley, who was next to him, and said, let's be manly here because today we're going to light a candle that will never go out. That's brave. Or think of the opposition to believers in Cambodia during the regime of the Khmer Rouge. One writer describes a Christian teacher and his wife and children being rounded up taken out into what were known as the killing fields and told to dig a large pit and then to kneel around that pit and the idea was they would be shot and fall into it. But uh, one of the teenage boys was so terrified that he got up and he ran away into the woods. And very interestingly, the father requested the soldiers not to chase after him. And instead, the father called out to his son and said, come and die with us, for we will soon be with Christ. And amazingly, the boy did return, and the whole family died together. Some of you might have seen people die peacefully, and perhaps even with with great expectation. But friends, that is very, very different from the horror that Jesus was facing here. And you and I need to understand this morning that every believer 
can approach death with confidence because of what Jesus faced in Gethsemane. You'll notice in verse 35 that Mark calls this moment Jesus' hour because this is something that's been coming closer and closer from the moment of his birth. And in verse 36, Jesus calls it his cup, which pictures something that he's got to drink or swallow. And the hour is the hour of judgment, and the cup is the cup of judgment, where where the justice and the wrath and the fury of God came down on sin, exactly as it should, except that it's coming down on the sinless Jesus. So Jesus is having something poured out onto his head which should have been poured out onto others and he becomes the object of the Father's wrath and the Father's fury. It literally overwhelms him. And it's absolutely beyond our ability to grasp the full horror of this. And I think perhaps that's one of the reasons why Paul says in Ephesians 3 that the love of Christ will never properly be fathomed. We're going to go on discovering the height and the breadth and the depth of the love of Christ forever. How do we know that this was judgment? Well, the word cup is an Old Testament word for judgment. So Jeremiah 49 says... You will not go unpunished, says the Lord. You must drink the cup. And back in Mark chapter 10, Jesus himself said to James and John, Can you drink the cup I drink? And of course they couldn't possibly. And neither could we. So what's happening here in the garden is Jesus asking his heavenly Father if the cup can be removed because he knows just how terrible it actually is. And this is the decision he has to make. Does he take the judgment on himself, in which case case others won't have to face the judgment, or does he escape the judgment, in which case others will have to face it? And so in verse 36, he offers this perfect prayer, He says, Abba, the tender word for father, Abba, if it's possible, of course I would absolutely love for this not to happen. And then Jesus surrenders entirely and says, yet, not what I will, but what you will. Let me remind you, there are three times in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus prays. Each one is a moment of very serious temptation. The first is back in chapter 1, where Jesus has been healing people all day, and he goes off by himself to pray, because it occurs to him this could be a wonderful ministry. I mean, just think of today, wouldn't it be a marvellous thing if Jesus came to Cape Town and went into our hospitals and walked through the wards and said to people, you're healed, you're well, you can go home. Just imagine the expressions of of joy and happiness on people's faces. 
And I think back in chapter 1, it must have been a very real temptation for Jesus to make that his top priority. So he goes away to pray, and he comes back and he says, actually, I've got to preach the kingdom, which demands that I die for sinners. Then the second time he prays is in Mark chapter 6. Do you remember where he's just been feeding the crowd? And again, it must be a wonderful thing, mustn't it, to have the ability to feed thousands and thousands of people. Uh, just imagine seeing a multitude who are, who are starving, no idea where the next meal's coming from. Suddenly they're filled and they're joyful. And again, Jesus retires by himself to pray. And he emerges from that time of prayer absolutely crystal clear that he's got to preach the kingdom and he's got to die for sinners. And now here in chapter 14, Mark records the third significant moment of prayer. And here the temptation, quite simply, is to escape the judgment. And again, he emerges from that time of prayer absolutely clear that he, the righteous, must drink the cup for us, the unrighteous. I want to finish this morning by giving you three important things to take away from this little section. The first is, please will you lock it into your brain that Gethsemane proves that the death of Jesus involves far more than mere crucifixion. It involves judgment. Now lots and lots of people today think that the very idea of judgment and wrath are unworthy of God. Uh, They don't want to think of God like that. And so they, they kind of whitewash these chapters and say that Jesus was just actually giving us A marvellous example of self-sacrifice for other people. But Gethsemane makes that absolutely impossible because Jesus is struggling with more than a crucifixion. He's facing the cup of God's wrath. So that's the first thing. The second thing I want you to take away is in verse 36 where Jesus says to God the Father, not what I will, but what you will. And I hope you're going to keep reminding yourself that when Jesus said those words, that sealed your salvation. He made his decision in Gethsemane. Not my will, but your will be done. And because Jesus did drink the cup of God's wrath, you who believe in Christ don't have to drink it. You never will. You can go safely through to the presence of God and meet him without fault and with great joy. There's no cup of judgment for you to drink because Jesus drank it. There's no condemnation for you because Jesus took it. And there's no separation awaiting you because he got it. Now that's very important. You know, we've all got to remind ourselves now and again, that's what my salvation depends on. 
And I hope you're going to meditate on that this week and in the days approaching Easter. But in his death, he took your place. And for that reason, he offers you the most wonderful gift you ever could be offered. And I hope you've accepted it. If you haven't, it's high time you did. And let me also say on this that if you perhaps have fallen back into sin this past week, let me say to you that your sins do not shock Christ. They don't. What you've got to do is you've got to just turn to him as fast as you can and say, I don't have anywhere else to go but you. There's no point in staying separated from him because you think you've done something ghastly. There's no point in trying to put yourself through some kind of moral gymnasium. You've just got to turn to Christ. Turn to Christ this morning because his death was sufficient for you whatever you've done. That's the second thing. And then the third thing this morning to take away is that those words in verse 36 are a prayer you can pray. What a great prayer to pray. So if you're trying to decide what to do in, for example, a difficult relationship, the most important thing you can do is say to God, not my will, but yours be done. Or if you're facing a particular temptation, even as you're sitting in church this morning, and you're thinking, do you know what, I am going to go down that road because it scratches where I'm itching. And if I do, I'll be satisfied, and afterwards I'll come back to God. Stop. Stop. Right there. Take a breath and say, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And, you know, if you're wondering what to do with some important decision, it might actually be a morally neutral decision. But you're confused and you don't know which way to turn. Just bow your head and pray, Father, not my will, but yours be done. You see, that's how we go forward to maturity. That's how we find ourselves strangely free. And that's how we all follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we do thank you for this, this window into the work of Christ. We give you enormous thanks for the decision he made, for the cost he bore, for the blessing he brought. And we pray that you would help us to rejoice in his decision. And we pray that you would help us to surrender ourselves fully to your gracious purposes. For Christ's sake. Amen.